This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters at Patreon.com and by N Plus One Magazine, which features some of the most urgent and exciting political writing, essays, fiction, and cultural criticism on the left today. N Plus One's new issue, Get Help, is available in print and online and has loads of great pieces, perfect for dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Mark Engler's Spanish for Vietnam on the legacy of the Central American Solidarity Movement. Engler takes us to the origins of the movement in the 1980s when, quote, tens of thousands of Americans joined together to oppose their government's policies in El Salvador. Shaped by the international human rights movement and with a strong religious component, the Solidarity Movement is often remembered as a, quote, cautious, liberal, and humanitarian-focused version of anti-interventionism. But Engler interprets it as a hopeful model for contemporary organizing efforts. As he explains, the, quote, events in El Salvador became for thousands of Americans a gateway to taking action, attending protests against the government, denouncing state propaganda, sympathizing with foreign insurgents, illegally harboring refugees, that might previously have been unimaginable. This month, Dig listeners can take 25% off a year subscription to N Plus One. Go to nplus1.com slash the dig to subscribe and enter the dig at checkout. That's one word, the dig. You'll get three issues, plus full access to the magazine's online archive and free entry to readings and events, all for less than $3 a month. That's n-p-l-u-s-o-n-e-m-a-g dot com slash the dig. Enter the dig, one word, at checkout. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. New York Magazine writer Eric Levitz is a bright spot upon an otherwise often bleak hot take landscape. In the words of my Jacobin colleague Seth Ackerman, Levitz is, quote, probably the sharpest liberal political commentator writing today. But while Levitz's approach to the pragmatics of politics may be more liberal than left, he also evinces a deep sympathy and openness to democratic socialism. And I, for one, certainly consider him to be a comrade. And Levitz was also the first person I thought of when I decided to do a short interview, short in the relative temporality of dig time, at least, on what happened in Washington last week with this massive package that offered way more relief to corporations than to the millions of Americans losing their jobs and facing the imminent possibility of illness and or death. Before we get started, we are, as you know, ramping up podcast production here at The Dig to meet your analytical needs in this time of crisis, and that is by and large, funded by listeners who support us at patreon.com slash the dig. We are also about to spend a bunch of money on a new limited time series of audio reporting and storytelling to help explain what the hell happened and what the hell is happening. We are only able to do all of this because those of you listening who can afford to do so and still have stable sources of income, contribute what you can at patreon.com slash the dig. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. Okay, here is Eric Levitz, who writes about politics for New York Magazine's Intelligencer and who washes his hands thoroughly. He does very little else these days. Eric Levitz, welcome back to The Dig. 
Yeah, great to be here. At the beginning of the week, Senate Democrats stood together and blocked the Republican rescue package because it amounted to an almost entirely unaccountable blank check to corporate America that offered very, very little to workers. They did win some concessions, but still passed legislation that amounts to just an an astounding transfer of wealth, of public wealth, to capitalists. And while workers do get an important boost in unemployment benefits, that doesn't help people who were previously out of work. And then there's the one-time direct cash payment, which is obviously sorely needed, but it's woefully insufficient, just one time, not monthly, will be really slow in arriving for those who don't have direct deposit with the IRS, and even slower for those who have moved since then. And it's means-tested in a really damaging way because it's based on people's prior incomes, I believe from 2018, which might not at all fit people's current economic situations in 2020. And what's more, millions of undocumented immigrants, people who create much of this country's wealth, get nothing. And I think that will lead to very serious social and economic crises down the road, though that's not receiving much attention in the media that I can see. Can you start by describing what's in this package, and then we'll get to the the politics. So yeah, as you mentioned, basically, I think the the best thing that is in the package is this uh, these revisions to unemployment insurance. That basically the the ambition from Senate Democrats, in my understanding, was to try and do a hundred percent wage replacement, at least for middle income workers and below. They ultimately found that uh, basically the most expedient way of doing that would be to do it through the unemployment insurance system by essentially increasing standard weekly unemployment benefits by $600 a week, which $600 a week is about equal to what you would make if uh, you were doing a standard 40-hour work week at a $15 minimum wage. I believe that's how they came by that figure. But so basically, the the provision would add $600 to whatever your state-level normal unemployment benefit is, which varies pretty widely um, from state to state. It would also establish a pandemic unemployment assistance program to bring in workers who don't ordinarily qualify for unemployment insurance, which is increasingly a larger and larger share of the workforce over the past couple decades. So freelancers, gig economy workers, um, workers who are furloughed. They're going to get it's sort of a complicated formula, but basically, I think it's like one half of the state average unemployment benefit plus six hundred dollars, and then it extends the uh, duration of unemployment benefits by thirteen weeks, so that the benefits will last for about four months. So the the good thing here is that uh, for for a significant number of retail um, and restaurant and, and other service sector workers who have been uh, displaced by this crisis. A significant number of them are going to get; uh, they're going to earn more than they did uh, on the job for the next four months. And uh, obviously, we saw a couple nights ago that this, uh, you know, caused some consternation among Republicans. It is, along with the cash payment, to a lesser extent, um, a little bit of a rebuke of the welfare reform era kind of logic of moral hazard of, of actually taking care of people, even if they aren't making themselves useful to capital at this particular moment in time. Yeah, this framework emerged at least twice in the negotiations, as far as I can tell, once when Senate Republicans initially proposed giving less direct cash to poorer people and more to more affluent ones because they didn't want to disincentivize people from working. And then again, when you're ta- what you're talking about now, which is that paying people too much unemployment would disincentivize them from working their their shittily paid jobs, which of course prompted this this incredible response from from Bernie. Republican friends still have not given up on the need to punish the poor and working people. You haven't raised the minimum wage in ten years. Minimum wage should be at least fifteen bucks an hour. You haven't done that. You've cut program after program after program, and now horror of horrors. For four months, workers might be earning a few bucks more than they otherwise went. Well, needless to say, this is an amendment that is coming up. I don't think it's going to go very far. 
Yeah, I mean, the, the concern is, is really bizarre in terms of you don't qualify for unemployment insurance if you quit, uh, nor if you're fired for cause. So what you're saying is that people are going to have an incentive to very carefully scheme to get themselves fired, uh, but not for anything that is uh, obviously shirking the duties of the job, uh, so as to secure four months of slightly higher pay while not working and then thrown into complete precarity in potentially a economic depression. So, so yeah, it, it's a rather confusing concern. And then you also had, like you said, that initially they wanted to make the payments to those who had not filed any federal income taxes, uh, Mitt Romney's famous 47%, that those people would get less than than other people. You know, we are in a state of exception here, so I don't want to exaggerate the uh, ideological breakthrough that not, you know, denying these payments to, to such people represents. Um, you did have conservatives, uh, commentators, sort of uh, taking exception with the cutting out the poor, you know, in this situation where the 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 blamelessness uh, of workers for their plight is like made so manifest and and the source of their ineluctable fate is so easily identifiable. You know, ideally, we can kind of broaden that insight that actually, you know, most of the time, even if it's not even if it's not a virus that is, you know, derailing the whole economy and afflicting you know, us all collectively, there are these uh, uh, exogenous, exigent circumstances and forces that are often influencing uh, a person's ability to work. But regardless, uh, so yeah, so so that was that was all secured. And even and even if that was true, briefly, that higher government benefits would lure people out of the job market if these jobs are so critical as the Senate Republicans declared them, these Senate Republicans declared these jobs to be, then the response would be to raise wages for them commensurate to what would be necessary to keep them in the job. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that's another aspect of this moment that, uh, and I'm not the first person to to say this, that, that, that suggests a certain radical promise is the way that it has highlighted whose labor is is actually socially indispensable and the discrepancy between the the manifest social value of uh, certain forms of, of service sector labor and the market valuation that we've right. attached to that to that work you know so we've got we're finding that a lot of marketing teams maybe are uh you know either sidelined or uh working at lower capacity and, and we're not really suffering that much of a loss from that. Uh, it's possible that my publication might be suffering a revenue loss from that. I'm not sure. But we see that, you know, the people who stock our, our grocery shelves, the people who, um, you know, care for us when we're sick in, in hospitals, such as not just doctors, but nurses and, and other forms of care staff, we're getting a, a pretty clear illustration of, of how important uh, those people, that the people who work in our warehouses and deliver our packages are to our collective well-being. And yeah, it does seem like if we're really concerned that that giving these people a living wage uh, in terms of their unemployment benefit is going to, you know, just cripple our economy, then, then perhaps we could start just paying them more uh, on the job, especially in a context where they're putting their, their lives at risk. So the other provisions of the bill, you have this small business uh, preservation program that uh, basically you're going to extend... These subsidized loans, uh, cheap loans to um, small businesses that will be entirely forgiven, uh, at least to the extent that they're spent on um, payroll, employee benefits, utilities, rent and mortgage payments uh, and making other debt payments. Basically, everything that you need to do to just keep your business afloat. If you spend the borrowed money on that, then at the end of this process, the government's going to forgive your debt completely so long as you do not fire any workers or cut their pay. And then if, if you do fire some workers, then the amount that's forgiven goes down. Generally speaking, this is a, a good concept. It, it emulates what a lot of other countries are doing in terms of trying to keep the economy kind of frozen in amber until we can get through this so that we don't have a situation where we've lost all these otherwise, uh, we, we've lost all these these businesses that, that have been functioning even on, you know, standard market capitalist terms have been providing services that people have valued uh, with their dollars. Um, And basically, yeah, you don't want to engineer mass unemployment. You don't want to have a delay in the recovery because you've got to have all these businesses retrain their workers 
find new workers, find new locations uh, to meet the the resurgent demand for restaurants and and all these other things. But the the issue is that it's only they only put three hundred sixty seven billion dollars in that bucket, and that that by all indications that I've seen is a, is a tiny fraction of what is actually required to keep all the businesses that we say we want to to keep uh, on life support. Conservative economists such as a Bush administration official Glenn Hubbard and and the American Enterprise Institute's uh, Michael Strain, who typically spends most of his time talking about how raising the minimum wage is going to cause uh, you know economic collapse. These guys proposed a, a $1.5 trillion uh, version of this program. So yeah, Congress really came in very much too low, although the, the concept is generally good. Then there's a $150 billion to help state budgets, but uh, that also, again, good, but but too small. These states right now are, obviously, their public health spending is shooting through the roof, their Medicaid shooting through the roof, a lot of different sort of social programs while their revenue is cratering as uh, economic activity slows. And if you don't send more money to states, which, uh, you know, do not have money printers that they can make go burr as the federal government does, uh, what you're going to have is states that's already happening in Ohio pushing through across the board cuts and austerity, which is going to undermine any attempts you make to try to plug the demand hole in the economy and avert recession, you're going to have states working completely against the federal government's entire stimulus policy, which is um, obviously bad for everyone, bad for workers, bad for business, and, and bad for Donald Trump's re-election prospects. And yet uh, something is keeping Congress and, and I guess specifically congressional Republicans uh, from from spending what this uh, crisis demands. And then finally, you've got, as you mentioned at the top, the the sort of potentially most consequential bit of the bill, which is um, it's it's four hundred and fifty. Basically, it's five hundred billion dollars for corporate bailouts of, of various kinds. Uh, about like fifty billion or so of that is for aiding specific industries that have been hammered sort of most by the crisis and that also have good lobbyists, such as the airlines and Boeing, uh, defense contractors, companies that uh, classify as important in national security. They're getting sort of direct, I think, grants. Um, and then there's left over a, a $454 billion bucket of money that is kind of almost symbolic. It's basically, it's, it's being used to backstop loans at the Federal Reserve. So the Federal Reserve, our central bank, has already started buying up corporate bonds, uh, basically financing, uh, lending money to corporations directly, whereas... Which is unprecedented. uh, This is sort of a a brand new thing. Traditionally, the Federal Reserve is the bank to banks. It it lends money to financial institutions, which then lends money to the real economy, to, to firms that actually produce stuff. Now, in this in this crisis, for the first time, the Fed is, is lending directly to corporations. It already started doing that, but now this uh, this pot of money, this four hundred fifty four billion, I guess, sort of maintains the kind of fiction of the Fed is like a normal bank where it needs to capitalize its loans, so that a normal private bank takes deposits and then lends out money several times more than it actually has on hand in terms of capital, right? And so a standing a standard leverage ratio is like ten to one, where you have I have $454 billion on hand. I can use that to backstop for $4.5 trillion of loans. And so basically, even though the Fed can print money, and so it doesn't really need Congress to give it this pot of money, I think to symbolize Congress's blessing of the whole program and to maintain this kind of, I don't know, fiction that the Fed needs to like run a net positive income, it basically has this pot of money now to make upwards of $4 trillion worth of loans uh, directly to corporations. Technically, the legislation, um, this this bucket of money is for loans, not just to corporate, to bit, not just to major corporations, but also to potentially some certain uh, creditworthy small businesses, and then potentially to help state and local governments as well finance their debts. But Congress didn't really specify. Basically, it outsourced a very large part of the bill to Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin and the Federal Reserve. And though basically the central bank is going to get to decide how much of that goes to corporations, how much to states, and how much to small businesses. But the general understanding on Capitol Hill 
is the bulk of that money is is going to finance loans to corporations. I mean, for a variety of reasons, you can one can imagine why it would be easier for a major corporation to access Fed loans than it is, say, your neighborhood bar. Yeah. Uh, well, I think, among other things, there's restrictions on the lending that you need to have debt of a certain quality uh, as assessed by ratings agencies, at least for, for most of these loans. Um, and obviously, it's, it's a lot easier <laughs> for a, a large corporation to, to secure Moody's uh, stamp of approval than it is for uh, whatever tavern. So yeah, I think that, that that's one aspect of it. It's also just like the logic of the legislation. There's a section helping small businesses. There's a section on helping states and local governments. And, and this is widely understood as the primary purpose of this is is for funding corporations. But the details of all of it is very opaque. Uh, the Fed announced this this Main Street lending program that is, is meant to facilitate uh, its support of small businesses, but it offered almost no details on that. It seemed a little bit like on the day that they were going to start buying large corporate bonds, they wanted sort of cover to do that by signaling we're not ignoring small business. And ostensibly, they're going to follow through. But it, it's just it's not at all clear exactly. They, yeah, just immense power has been concentrated in Jerome Powell, the Fed chair and, and his uh, his board. Um, and it's not clear exactly how they're going to use it. This is something that I was just discussing with Grace Blakely the other day, that the rise of neoliberalism and financialization in recent decades has also meant the increasing monopoly character of American capitalism and the broader dynamics of this rescue package will not encourage small business. It'll do the the opposite, encouraging this very much already underway trend towards monopolization and consolidation. It seems to me that the the American capitalism that emerges on the other end of this crisis could be one that's even more consolidated and more monopolized. Yeah, I think that that's, um, that's certainly the analysis that folks like the American Prospects, David Dayen, um, uh, Zachary Carter at the Huffington Post, Matt Stoller, I think Marshall Steinbaum as well, a lot of these uh, progressive writers who are very concerned about market concentration and uh, anti-monopoly, their, their view is I mean, in, in which I, I think is is largely ostensibly correct that you have this situation that is a, a recipe for just decimating small firms. And almost every recession provides sort of has this, I think, effect of concentrating capital and concentrating the corporate sector because only the big boys are able to survive when demand plummets and when credit becomes harder to access that the, the large Titans that that have the the cash reserves and that have the the creditworthiness to continue to finance their operations in those conditions while others can't have a great opportunity to eat up the the small fish, and that I think is is turbocharged in this situation given um, given how many small businesses are are in the service sector or in sectors where you know essentially their businesses have been outlawed, and Congress has underspent on its aid to small businesses. While also another point that, that Dan uh, has emphasized that I think is, is really important is that we basically have the whole crisis uh, that coronavirus has kicked off is, is really highlighting the the limits of U.S. state capacity. And so the small businesses uh, that are going to be applying for these loans have to go through the Small Business Administration, which is an underfunded bureaucracy, already rickety, already known to be difficult to work with, as you suggested the individuals who are uh, eligible for these direct cash support, it's going to be, from my understanding, those who have filed their uh, taxes with the IRS uh, through direct deposit, people who have signed up to have their tax rebates served to them through direct deposit, have submitted their banking information to the IRS, they will get their cash payments within a few weeks. But those are also, I'm guessing, the people most likely to need this the least. Right. So so they need this the least, but even they, it's going to take a few weeks. The IRS, even for us people who have given our banking information to the IRS and that hasn't changed, uh, apparently the IRS is so understaffed and, and underfunded and that, that that's going to take a few weeks itself, I guess maybe also to meet uh, because it needs to review these means test requirements. But then for people who are unbanked, the estimate is it's going to be about four months, if at all. Uh, for the government to track down their addresses and get those checks in the the mail, 
Whereas uh, the large corporations have by far, you know, one of the most effective institutions of our government, the, the Federal Reserve, the central bank, you know, this this institution that has proven itself capable of essentially a, a significant degree of global governance. I mean, this is an institution that was able to maintain the dollar-based uh, international financial system amid very adverse conditions in after the 2008 crisis, very quickly establishing these uh, dollar swap lines with all these other central banks all across the world to help private financial institutions throughout Europe may keep good on their dollar-denominated loans. Anyway, this is a very competent institution that has already taken a wide variety of sweeping and creative measures to keep the bottom from falling out during this crisis. And, you know, unlike the Senate, the, the central bank is not about to go on vacation for a month. It is, it's there. It's got the tools that it needs to get uh, these, this capital in the hands of corporations that need it. And so, yeah, I think this is that, that, that dynamic further facilitates the already existing ability of larger, larger firms to consolidate market share in the context of a, a severe recession. Yeah, because the Fed is highly competent especially by comparison to the the profound incompetence of the elected branches of government. But then it raises the question, as you write competent for what and for who, you write, quote, there is now a bipartisan consensus in favor of top-down economic planning, just so long as that planning is done by officials who are less accountable to the median voter than to the median investment bank, debated far afield from the media spotlight, and articulated in acronym Latin jargon, completely inaccessible to ordinary people. But but you continue, quote, if our options are to be ruled by a blundering pseudo-democratic body, a.k.a. Mitch McConnell's Senate, or by competent unelected technocrats, one might reasonably prefer the latter. What does the fact that we are faced with these two really shitty options say about the state of things, the fact that American capitalism can only survive through banker technocracy. Yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, it's bleak. Um, <laughs> I'm like uh, laughing more than normal on this show as things get yeah. bleaker. I don't know. Yeah, no, it's it's tough. You, you gotta laugh. I mean, you know, like I did, you know, suggest a, a, a few minutes ago, I do think that it is the case that this rescue package is better than it would be if uh, Paul Ryan were still the Speaker of the House. And than it would be if the Democratic Party was was still exactly the same uh, Democratic Party that it was in 1996. You know, I, I don't want to totally send a, a black pill message of, uh, you know, that, that there's there's nothing worth struggling over here. Thank you. Um, <laughs> uh, not that, you know, that it's a totally irrational perspective, but, I, but I, I think that there is enough evidence and enough moral compulsion in addition to that evidence to, to continue to, to, to push through. But so, so yeah, so I, I, I guess my, you know, part of the taken, part of my argument in that, that column that you referenced was that part of why we're in a situation where our elected branches of government are so unresponsive to popular opinion that it seems like there's not much lost transferring power to a unelected technocracy because, you know, yeah, they're not accountable to us either. But at least they sort of kind of know what they're doing, at least in their subject area of expertise. And, you know, they're not going to spend several days while we need to sort of well, we're desperately waiting for infusions of of capital and into the economy to just to keep people afloat, demagoguing about the vile specter of uh, someone who who didn't uh, didn't work much last year getting uh, a check from the government when the entire economy has collapsed around them. But I think that part of the reason why we're in that situation is, is precisely because because of decisions made in, in previous eras to depoliticize the kinds of economic policymaking that uh, the Federal Reserve specializes in, that basically questions of control over money creation and credit provision used to be at the very center of American democratic politics and, and agitation as an agrarian republic where the terms of credit subsistence farmers were, were so central to daily life and, and material well-being. If you are in an environment in, in which the monetary policy authorities 
are running a deflationary monetary policy where money is very rare. And so the value of a dollar is going up over time and you're borrowing dollars to sell to finance your agricultural activities. And so the, the value of your product is, is going down while the, the value of your debts is going up. This is an environment that's, that's absolutely ruinous. And so monetary policy and in questions of who controls uh, the creation of credit was really central to uh, populist, to the original populist movement in this country and to almost all radical movements in this country for the first couple of centuries of our existence. Uh, but in recent years, it's just been Ron Paul. Yeah, now it's just it's it's uh, the preserve of, of libertarian cranks, uh, socialists, and in more recent years, this modern monetary theory movement. But uh, for the most part, I mean, really, monetary policy was American politics, you know, arguments, all those debates about the about silver and, and uh, free silver and gold and to a certain extent tariff policy were, were about money. But but yeah, uh, since for for many decades now, we've had the ideal of Fed independence and the idea that money is a purely technical issue and that really it's actually dangerous to have this at all in the, the realm of, of democratic contestation. And, um, and, and I argue that basically what happened when we really tried to move questions of, of credit and, and money outside of the democratic sphere, especially in the late 70s with the stagflation crisis, that what ended up happening was basically you deregulated finance so that Congress wouldn't have to adjudicate the supply of credit and you had Paul Volcker use the independence of the Fed and use sort of the obscuring language of, of monetarism to push through a, a basically a, a, a policy of bringing back in price stability via decimating the labor movement and via uh, suppressing the ability of, of American workers to demand the wage levels that they had uh, gotten used to at that point. And so not exactly a coincidence that the removal of monetary policy from democratic contestation coincides with the rise of finance. Not, not a coincidence uh, at all. And, and I would submit that um, a lot of other things have been happening the past few decades, but I would, I would submit that the, the financialization of the economy, the decline of the trade union movement that's inextricable from that, that these things have played a pretty major role in giving us the Congress that we have and giving us the state capacity uh, or lack thereof that, that we now we now have to confront this this virus with. Returning to the politics of the last week, what did Democrats win in the final bill that wasn't initially on the table? And do you think, given how shitty this legislation still ended up being that they could have won and fought for more, both in terms of shaping and curbing the corporate bailout and also in terms of providing more substantial and long-term support to workers. And and then lastly, in your view, did the resurgent left, you referenced that this is a different Democratic Party than 1996 as, as uh, underwhelming and troubling as it still might be. Did this resurgent left that we've experienced in recent years, did it lead to Democrats being any bolder and better than they otherwise would have been? Yeah, I think those are good questions. So the, the, the first one, I think as we already referenced, so initially Republicans wanted to make cash payments to those who hadn't filed any tax returns, $600 instead of the $1,200 that would go to middle-income people who had filed taxes. Dem Democrats were able to kill that. They were able to significantly increase the generosity of the unemployment insurance benefits. As for the the pot of money that's going to corporations through the Fed, last I saw, they were able to get that any corporation that does accept public credit through this program needs to maintain 90% of its workforce um, for the next six months, I believe. Uh, there's there's some limits on executive compensation also during that time and on share buybacks. The language in places is a little bit Weasley, and I... I so I'm not 100%. I'm still trying to figure out exactly the degree to which there are some requirements that, that Mnuchin can potentially lift, though it might be able, possible to contest him lifting the provision if 
basically, I think there's like language like it, unless it's like absolutely necessary for like the corporation to survive financially, it cannot do X. And then but it might potentially be up to Steve Mnuchin to make that determination. So I, I think that there are some good requirements on this money, but it's still a little ambiguous exactly how effective some of them are. There's a rule, for example, that for um, it's sort of arbitrary, but for for mid-sized firms, not large ones and not small ones, but mid-sized ones that 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 take the bailout money, I believe they need to commit to neutrality in union drives for a certain period of time after they take the money, which is is pretty cool. But again, I'm, I'm not exactly sure exactly how enforceable it is, and it's it's kind of arbitrary. I believe that those are most of the the major wins. Uh, also, Democrats fought for um, funding for tribal governments. Uh, that were initially going to be, I believe, um, stiffed in terms of the funding that's going to states and municipalities. So uh, for Native communities, they were able to get uh, a few billion dollars. And there's a variety of little things, basically, to, to, to various constituencies within the Democratic coalition where they were able to secure funding that Republicans were not initially disposed to provide. As for what whether something better could have come from this, I, I think I'm inclined to say yes. I think that the House sort of kind of chose not to lead on this, right? I mean, Democrats control the House, Republicans control the Senate, and the House did not really try to start this process off by, you know, for example, saying, look, we have a lot of disagreements, but we all agree that individual workers and small businesses need help right now. Let's get those checks out the door, then have our big fight about uh, how we're going to structure this corporate bailout. Like they could have fought to split the bill. Yeah, because my my reading of the politics basically is that Democrats do have a source of leverage here from the fact, uh, from the basically the situation that Republicans were able to manipulate to sociopathic effect uh, in 2009, in, in 2010, or, or rather, especially in, in 2000, uh, and also 2011, when, when we were still sort of had very high unemployment and they, they pushed austerity, which is that the public is the electorate, at least historically, is going to hold the president and the president's party accountable for negative economic circumstances. Yet Democrats are, are always terrified that they'll be held responsible for anything and everything. Yeah, I I, I think that it, it would be nice to sometimes I think also, you know, people on the left and, and progressives want it to matter exactly how Democrats message something in an a particular moment because it would be a healthier democratic politics uh, if it were the case that how Pelosi presents this legislation to the public right now really makes a difference to how it's received. Uh, one sort of lesson that I've taken in observing politics over the last few years, and including the Democratic primary this year, is that the the percentage of the public that is paying close attention to this stuff isn't isn't very large. And the effects on public opinion of discrete events this far from Election Day tends to really fade. I mean, if I, I believe that polls really showed that in October 2016, the Access Hollywood tape gave Hillary Clinton a, a significant maybe seven to eight point lead in the popular vote. And it, it only took a few weeks for the, you know, Trump's uh, tape sexual assault confession to just kind of lose salience. So anyhow... From what I understand, what's going to really matter out of all of this is is how strong is the economy in November of this year. And it obviously, Trump's not automatically going to win if we have a, a solid recovery going by then. But the political implications here, basically, the better job Democrats do, decent chance, the better their chances of losing are. But ultimately, in a crisis like this, we need to prioritize the, the welfare of the public. But so for that reason, Democrats have leverage. Like if, if this package doesn't doesn't go through in time, if businesses are not preserved and are not able to rapidly recover once we're able to relax social distancing measures, that actually benefits Democrats. At the end of the day, Trump and Republicans from an electoral, purely crassly electoral perspective are the ones who really need stimulus to happen and stimulus to happen now. And so given that, I think that it, you could have a dynamic where you actually are able to sweat Republicans into agreeing to stuff that otherwise they would not. The issue for Democrats is that uh, they actually do care to some extent about their constituents and about the, the good of the country. And if they were going to try to make Republicans blink by withholding, uh, by, by basically 
basically, I think that in order to get really significant concessions from McConnell and Trump, you would need to have a staring contest, play a game of chicken. It would need to take you need to sweat them out and wait them out for an extended period of time, I think. And you would need to sweat. You would need to wait them out and stare them down even as the economy started to fall apart even more than it already is for a few days. But even that presumes that Republicans are even operating using that calculus because you wrote that basically, quote, Republicans are not a normal conservative party, but a uniquely reactionary political formation that they're not at the end of the day led by even their own medium or or long-term interests, even crassly so. I agree. I think that there's like two sort of countervailing forces within the Republican Party and within its its behavior over the past couple of weeks, which is this simultaneous instinct towards self-preservation and towards the preservation of the profitability of capital and this pockets of like real actual ideological, like some of them really believe the deficit stuff, kind of, or at least like do really feel like hurt inside when they approve government spending on things that are not used to kill people, like bombs and such. Yeah, no, um, they're true believers. Some yeah, of them. I, I mean, some, yeah, it's a, it's a mix. It's a mix of, 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 of cynics and, and, and ideologues. And so it does create sort of a contradictory position where you're not, not sure exactly what's motivating them. At the same time, that what I was driving towards is that because it would take, I think, an extended staring contest in order to get real significant concessions like uh, guaranteed equity stakes and, and voting shares uh, in the corporations that are bailed out, it's very hard to do that if you haven't already sent out the checks, if you haven't already approved the unemployment insurance expansion, if you haven't already taken care of the things that are overwhelmingly popular and just incredibly urgently needed. And so I think that if, if Democrats, in order, I think, to get the best possible package here, I think they would need to lead in the House, possibly led with really emphasizing that we need to get the checks out the door to individuals right now, then the stuff we disagree about, let's talk or, or what have you. But uh, that's my armchair analysis. It does, for whatever it's worth, uh, David Plouffe, the, the former, uh, I don't even saying his name right, but uh, the former Obama advisor uh, was also of the opinion that Democrats would have gotten a better deal here if they had um, if they had really taken the initiative uh, in the House. So does that mean that you think that the forces in Congress represented by the more Bernie radical left or the Warren liberal left could have exercised power in a way more effectively that could have changed how Democrats as a whole approach this? Uh, that. That was a perspective that I think was expressed by Matt Stoller, who is not exactly an ultra leftist and I should add has not exactly endeared himself to a lot of people recently by insisting that it's correct to call this the China flu. But but he thinks that uh, that left leaning senators should have voted voted no. I can see the argument. I don't think that at the point where where, where Stoller was really dispirited, I don't know. It doesn't like that. It would have been 94 to 2 then if, if Warren and Sanders voted against it. I don't know what that would have really accomplished at that point in the process. As far as whether they could have done more to shape the legislation early on or shape more precisely legislative strategy, I, I'm not in a position really to, to, to say exactly uh, exactly the degree to which they have the ability to influence leadership and the degree to which they did try to. Um, so I, 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 yeah, I don't know that I can say. Earlier this this week, you wrote about the danger of a false balance in the media, which is, of course, a longstanding problem, but perhaps particularly dangerous right now. You wrote, quote, the mainstream press has attributed the Senate's inaction to Washington infighting or else to Democratic intransience. But Chuck Schumer's caucus didn't vote down the Republican bill over some minor detail or because it insisted on dictating the left's preferences on an issue that genuinely divides blue and red America. Rather, the key sticking point is that the GOP bill would empower the Trump administration to dole out $500 billion in bailout money to corporations of its own choosing, without forbidding bailout firms from laying off their workers. I think I'm one of the only people under 40 and one of the only socialists to get the print New York Times 
every day and probably the only socialist under 40 to get the New York Times in print every day. But those ha- their headlines in particular have been infuriating or infuriating me all week for precisely this reason. Why is it that the media is so reflexively committed to this he said, she said political reporting? And do you agree that this poses particular dangers right now, given how high stakes it is, how Trump is perceived by the public in the run up to November? And I haven't even been watching TV, so I have no clue what's been going on there on cable. But I mean, what was remarkable is that while MSM reporters are overwhelmingly not leftists, we, we've seen how they treated the Bernie campaign. They are, though, in fact, liberals who privately think Trump is a sociopath. And yet they still report Republican versus Democratic politics the same way that they always have. You see some distinctions, at least when I am in the unfortunate position of, of, of watching cable news. I think it's still the case that uh, that the mainstream media, CNN, does treat Trump more critically than they would any other Republican president. And that there is, you know, I mean, because the man goes so far out of his way to to make it impossible for them to, to do him the favor that they're so eager to do of smoothing off his sharper edges and of granting him the dignity of the office is, you know, that's what the media wants to do so badly. (laughs) They want every day is the day that they want him to become the president of the United (laughs) States. Um, But like earlier this, I think it was this week, who knows what time is these days, but uh, like uh, Peter Alexander, I think the maybe ABC news reporter who, who asked Trump just like, he just threw him a softball of like, what, what would you say to Americans who are feeling scared right now? This is like not a hard hitting question. This is like, cue your talking points. Uh, and, and here's an opportunity to be leader on television and uh, comfort a, a, a fearful nation. And Trump just ripped, uh, ripped him uh, that, uh, you know, you're like a awful reporter. What a nasty question. You say the Americans were scared, though. I guess nearly 200 dead, 14,000 who are sick, millions, as you witnessed, who are scared right now. What do you say to Americans who are watching you right now who are scared? Uh, I say that you're a terrible reporter. That's what I say. I think it's a very nasty question, and I think it's a very bad signal that you're putting out to the American people. The American people are looking for answers, and they're looking for hope. And you're doing sensationalism. And uh, the same with NBC and Comcast. I don't call it. I don't call it Comcast. I call it Comcast. Let me just ask for whom you work. Let me just say something. That's really bad reporting. So you do see them treating Trump differently just because he gives the makes it impossible. But uh, but they do still try to treat congressional Republicans even after congressional Republicans have, with the impeachment vote, with the the handling of that whole process, like done everything in their power to signal the. There is no distinction between Donald Trump and who we are. Nonetheless, they do still, I think, maintain a certain degree of of deference and and in, in upholding the the idea of um, the the equivalent legitimacy of, of the two major parties in Congress. And that you know, if they're having trouble reaching an agreement, then uh, you know, this partisan bickering is getting in the way of putting the country first. Sort of frame to things does seem to creep in. And I, I'm not sure, you know, I think there's uh, to have a long conversation about why that is the way that it is in terms of the business model, you know, of the establishment press starting in the mid 20th century when when you started having uh, advertisers, uh, large retailers that, you know, they want to get their ads in front of Democrats and Republicans alike um, and newspapers realize this. Uh, and so you have sort of uh, the dissolving of the partisan press and, and papers like the Times that established this view from nowhere, so as to be able to appeal to as wide a readership as possible so that they can get the financing of companies that want to sell their products to people across the political divide. Um, and that this creates a, that this base creates a superstructure of norms about uh, that it actually becomes an ideology that people really believe in. That this yeah, is how- so it doesn't have to be. And this is very important because this is where people scold Bernie Bernie Sanders for critiquing the corporate media. This is not about a particular advertiser telling a particular reporter what to do. It's how the economics of the corporate media fundamentally deeply shape ideology over time so that no one needs to be told what to do because they just become norms and it becomes normal. 
Yeah, I mean, I think you know, I, I'm I'm not a uh, as a uh, hired hand of the uh, the bourgeois corporate <laughs> press. I I don't think um, I don't subscribe to a determinism there. Like, I think that there is, especially in the digital age where people are you're publishing so much. There's a lot of different voices that are are being able to get into the conversation, and you know, it's not the case that that everything that gets reported in in the corporate media is inflected with this this class bias and ideology but it is the case that it attaches to a great a great deal of it and yeah like like you say that that uh i think the the legacy of now really um an obsolete business model you know today the new york times is much more dependent on subscriptions and advertising and its core reading base is liberals and so it actually no longer necessarily makes business sense for them to adopt this uh this view from nowhere sort of perspective on conflicts between the party of Trump and Democrats, especially as the Democratic coalition has now grown to absorb formerly Republican affluent constituencies. Uh, it really, it, it doesn't necessarily make sense business-wise, but it is something I think that it, it's just, it's so deeply ingrained ideologically. And then I guess also the other element of it is that in order to effectively do to break scoops in political journalism, you need to maintain sources within the Republican and Democratic parties. And so that's, I think, also another factor that, that influences uh, coverage. I think a lot of reporters are, you know, looking for if there is an opportunity where they can feel comfortable about that this is like sort of a real story, kind of, and it, it will make my Republican sources happy. Um, you know, I'm not going to pass up on that opportunity. So I think that's also like an element. But yeah. Yeah. No, I, I don't want to say that the, the, the Times and whatever is, is all garbage. I think their investigative reporting can be very strong. I love seeing Jamel Bowie on the op-ed page, but there, there are certain structural factors that I think lead to their political reporting and foreign policy reporting in particular to often be skewed towards a certain establishment. Yeah, no, no argument there. Viewpoint that then that's then cloaked as normal or, or that's then cloaked as universal. To finish up, Trump did initially try on being a, a wartime president. And a week ago, or whenever that was, a week ago, now seems like a year ago, I, I was worried that he might be able to pull that off, especially seeing the approval, relatively high approval ratings he was getting for his handling of the coronavirus crisis. But he certainly can't do that, be this wartime president, and try to reopen the economy by Easter, as he's threatening to do. And also, Trump, after initial flirtations, has refused to use emergency powers to command U.S. manufacturers to make and coordinate the distribution of masks and ventilators, things that the, the healthcare system obviously desperately and urgently needs. How do you think that this will play out politically if we see, continue to see, deaths skyrocket in coming weeks, especially if Trump tries to reopen the economy? Will he pay a price or is that an open question? If it is an open question, how can we ensure that he does pay a price? There's there's so much radical uncertainty about our current situation in, in, in so many along so many different dimensions. You know, our, our limited data still about uh, COVID nineteen. A lot of ambiguity about whether it looks like there is like a little bit of a second wave of cases happening in some places that that were real success stories and have since started reopening. I think there's been a, a flurry of new cases in, in Wuhan. And uh, so, you know, the question of, of whether or not we're going to be able to at all emula emulate what they've done in South Korea and Singapore, you know, except at a higher toll and, uh, you know, after a longer period of, of lockdown is a real big open question. And then there's the perennial ability of, of Donald Trump to uh, embarrass his... To shoot people in the middle of Fifth Avenue? Yes, to embarrass us. <laughs> his doomsayers in the media. So, you know, those two things make me reluctant to, to say anything with much confidence. Um, but uh, so first on, on the point that you were making, Trump, as is so often the case, if, if you squint, you can kind of see a Machiavellian logic there if you want to in terms of like, is he really, does he really want to open the economy right. back up in in early April uh, and, and risk, you know, creating mass death just when we're about to sort of maybe finally bend the curve? Or does he want to create a situation where, well, uh, you know, I, I wanted to open up the economy, but uh, these these blue state governors didn't let me and don't blame me for what's happening to the economy now. You know, I 
uh, whether you're trying to see the message of deflecting blame or or whatever, right. there's also been sort of indications of, you know, oh, this is like a blue state globalist problem. It's it's hurting these urban cities that, uh, you know, have allowed too much immigration and movement between borders and look what look what it's done to them. But then you see things like today, you know, it's not just New York that the administration is picking on, but at least according to the governor of Michigan, Democratic Governor Gretchen Whitmer, who Trump has publicly complained about this, you know, uppity lady governor. I mean, Mike Pence, I don't think he sleeps anymore. These, these are people that should be appreciated. He calls all the governors. I tell him, I mean, I'm a different type of person. I say, Mike, don't call the governor of Washington. You're wasting your time with him. Don't call the woman in Michigan. It doesn't make any difference what happens. The governor of Washington? No, you know what I say? If they don't treat you right, I don't call. But uh, Whitmer said today that that companies are refusing to supply equipment to Michigan specifically, or that the administration has like intervened to like block equipment getting there. And this is like Michigan is a swing state and is a pivotal battleground state for Trump's reelection strategy. And so if he's screwing with it out of personal peak at uh, this governor, then I think it reinforces my general sense with Trump, which is that most of what looks like maybe political strategy is like just, uh, you know, a pathological personalities lashing out instinctively, uh, you know. Just paranoid narcissism. Yeah. Um, So, I mean, there's obviously some strategy, but there's a lot of just paranoid narcissism and and just uh, really myopic moment to moment attempts to, I think, yeah, alleviate narcissistic injury, just change what's on my cable cable news channel right now to something that makes me feel better about myself tonight. Who cares what's going to happen after that, which is kind of what characterized his early response to the virus when he was acting, you know, as though Mitch McConnell could just have Senate Republicans vote to make the coronavirus go away like they did with immigration, sorry, like they did with impeachment, you know, where he was denying the existence of this thing that clearly he wasn't going to be able to continue denying the existence of. Yeah, he's bored of coronavirus, and yet every single channel that he changes his television to is still playing the coronavirus show. Yeah, no, he wants to be talking about, you know, whatever, invent a new caravan, all sorts of things that he would be having fun with if, if this thing wasn't getting it. I mean, they would. It, it, this does really get in the way of their being able to see, to just flood the media with both real and manufactured anti-Biden stories. Um, no one really gives a crap about Hunter Biden right now. Uh, so, yeah, this is really inconvenient for Trump uh, in that respect. As far as the approval rating, uh, we are seeing that we're seeing these these very, on the surface, baffling poll results where uh, a Fox News poll found that uh, over 50 percent of the public said that the government, federal government, waited too long to start taking action against coronavirus if they botched it, basically, while almost the exact same number, a majority, like including like a quarter of Democratic voters approve of the way Trump is handling the coronavirus crisis. Uh, And you're seeing Trump's overall approval rating getting back into um, highs uh, for his presidency. At the same time, though, if you look to other countries, almost every country that's been afflicted by the coronavirus, their leaders are seeing much larger bumps in approval that it looks like there is this rally around the flag of Frick that in a time of acute crisis, uh, a significant percentage of voters are inclined to, uh, you know, almost as a, you know, a wishful sort of approval that if I line up behind the leader and if I say that I approve, then maybe this is all going to work out OK, because I, I want I want success from the people who are in charge right now very much. Yeah, because having faith in one's president is having faith faith in one's own future for a lot of people, however misplaced that faith might be. Exactly. So from what I understand from the poli-sci literature, this, this effect tends to fade if things get significantly worse, uh, which they appear almost guaranteed to. So if I had to guess, I would say that things are going to get much worse for Trump politically once the, the effects of this explosion of unemployment begins to be felt. And once the the effects of the U.S. states almost unique among developed countries inability to cushion the blow for its working people from from the economic crisis because of its lack of state capacity, because of its allergy to social insurance, I, I don't think it's going to work out very well for him. But, you know, he's he's got a certain serendipity um, and 
there are epidemiological scenarios right now where we actually uh, are able to, through a combination of the lockdowns that we put in place and potentially through our low density and socially atomized society, um, that maybe we are able to wrap this up, you know, uh, or get get a handle at least the first wave of the virus by May. And maybe then you're able to get a little bit of catch up growth late in the year. And maybe that propels him to victory. You know, we'd obviously Biden has his uh, liabilities. So I don't know. I'm not digging Trump's grave at this point, uh, literal or figurative. But I, I would say that that I, I, I would put his odds of reelection, uh, you know, lower than I than I would have uh, in late January, certainly. But a lot, a lot remains to be seen. What do you see as the next round of fights in Washington and how then the left should approach them, especially given the weird animated state of the presidential campaign with Bernie still in the race and still very much trying to use his platform and I hope mobilize the the infrastructure of his campaign towards movement ends, but but almost definitely not going to to win. While while Biden, the presumed nominee, just seems more catastrophic and insufficient to the to the moment every day. I mean, I think that two things that come to mind are one, there's a lot of industries that, you know, you saw some reporting on like the, the cruise ship industry, which uh, is worried that it's not going to be able to access the Fed's pot of money because specifically because these these cruise ship companies, even though they operate mostly uh, in the American market, uh, organize themselves such that they pay uh, that they're, they're technically registered in foreign countries and pay no taxes to the U.S. government. And they're worried that this is going to cause the U.S. government to uh, discriminate against them um, in the bailout program. Uh, and so they want new language added to the to the legislation to, to fix this problem, which is is not a problem in the estimation of, of almost anyone uh, who isn't paid by the cruise ship industry to say it's a problem. So there's going to be, I think, stuff like that, not just the cruise ships, but but other industries with with strong teams on K Street that are going to try to either get cut in on action that they hadn't been previously or get a sweeter deal than they've already gotten. It, you know, obviously should be those should be winnable fights to oppose that stuff. And then there's going to be the the issue of what I was mentioning sort of at the top of the inadequacy of the aid to small businesses, to states and municipalities and to individuals. I think that that's going to be felt in the weeks to come if the forecasts that we have are remotely accurate. If we start seeing between 20 and 30 percent unemployment, I think that the the reality is those checks are going to take months to get to the people and that the Small Business Administration cannot possibly service all of the small businesses that merit aid based on the government's criteria, that these things are going to create a demand for another round of legislation. And I, I think I think that the case here is is so obviously strong. You're seeing conservative center right to center left governments, no matter where they fall on that spectrum across Europe, have done much more ambitious things in terms of uh, trying to keep uh, everybody whole for the duration of the crisis than the United States has. And so it's it's a very easy case to make. Uh, and I do think that uh, that now that some relief has gone out, that progressives and Democrats are in a position to exploit their leverage as the opposition party, as the party that is basically just begging Republicans to do what is in their own political interest and to take by, by taking care of, uh, you know, ordinary people who supply the economy with the demand that it needs to survive and to grow. I think that that there's no excuse to not being really assertive, uh, creative and aggressive with the demands uh, for the next round of legislation, which I think is going to be needed before the Senate ends its its spring break uh, on April 20th. But uh, at the very least, when when they come back tanned, rested and ready, uh, uh, the left needs to be ready, I think, to push some maximal demands. Well, Eric Levitz, thank you very much. Thank you. Eric Levitz writes about politics for New York Magazine's Intelligencer. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that, capital is reckless of the health or length of life of the laborer unless under compulsion from society. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. 
The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinators are Julia Rock and Zachary Nin. Our senior advisor is Thea Riofrancos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio. And please do find us wherever you subscribe to podcasts and leave us a review, preferably a nice one. Those ostensibly help introduce us to new listeners, but what really and truly does that is you telling people that you know to listen to the show and why you like it. Please make propaganda for us. And do, last but not least, find us at patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to help keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks is huge.